You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. We need to know how it is that we should interact with the world around us in a way that is winsome but holy. We need to know how to embrace our Christian freedom while still seeking the good of others. And the stakes are high in regards to this issue. Over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that. As Paul has called the church in Corinth to consider that that if they find that that the difficulties and the sufferings that come about as a result of the Christian life are too severe, and, and that they don't have a system for working that out, that they might fall away, But his stronger warning was that that they don't fall in love with the trappings of the world of pleasure around them. And we, likewise, cannot afford to get this wrong. We can't afford to be a church that becomes consumed with the things that that the world of of pleasure and and sin and enjoyment have to offer us because what's at stake is the unity of our church. What's at stake is seeing the ministry of the gospel advancing in our neighborhood. Paul would even say that our very souls are at stake. And so we must find a way to make decisions based on a true understanding of what it means to be free in the gospel, we must live as freed men and women, and we must know what it means to do that. And so Paul begins the text this morning by saying this, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so what Paul is saying when he says all things are lawful is is what he's doing is he's quoting something that the Corinthians have been saying. This is the Corinthians' very poor and unbiblical doctrine of Christian freedom. It's objectively wrong that all things are lawful. But it is the saying that the Corinthians have offered to Paul, and so he is using their terms. They probably started saying this, that all things were lawful, as a way of explaining their freedom from a set of religious rules. And so the Jewish Christian in Corinth has now been freed from the sacrificial and and ceremonial and dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant law of Moses. And so they, in their expression of that freedom, have begun saying that all things are lawful. And the formerly pagan Christian, the Gentile Christian in Corinth, is now free from any set of rituals or, or doctrines or set of behaviors that were formerly required of them. And so they're saying that all things are lawful. And it's true that we are free in Christ. We're free from the legal demands of the law. In that Christians do not have to eat certain foods, wear certain clothes, or perform specific rituals at at specific times and specific seasons in order to be loved or accepted by God. We are free from that. 
Because God's love is not earned by our good works or our right behavior, but it's rather given freely through the merits of Jesus' good works and right behavior and Jesus' sacrifice. But we cannot say that all things are lawful because Jesus was one who obeyed and upheld and fulfilled the law of God. Jesus is one who taught extensively on the law of God. Jesus is the one who said, you should not abolish the law of God, but you should uphold it. And he summarized the law of God. And he summarized it with what we now call the law of love. And that that the whole law of God, that all of God's commandments, that all of his demands of us are summarized in this, that we should love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and minds and souls, and that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. And so, in keeping in step with the teachings of Jesus, Paul is refuting the Corinthian misconceptions that all things are lawful. He says, it's not that all things are lawful. In fact, they're thinking about it completely wrongly. Paul is saying that what is important is that the Christian Christian is others-oriented. Considering the good of his neighbor above his own good. That the Christian life isn't a list of do's and don'ts. And so in that regards, we're not bound by the law. But it is a life compelled by love in order to love. The question is not what is allowed. The question is what is helpful. What will build up my neighbor? What will reveal God's love to others? Not is this allowed or permissible. But is it helpful? Is it worthwhile? Is it loving? Unity, love, and selflessness are the rules of Christ, not questions of abstinence or consumption. And so Paul has laid down this principle of the law of love, and he's going to continue in verses 26 through 29 to address unanswered questions regarding food that's been offered to idols. See, in chapters 8 and earlier in chapter 10, Paul made it very clear that the Corinthians were not to participate in idol feasts, in idol temples, eating idol food. He said that this was unhelpful for two main reasons. It's unhelpful because it's unloving to Christian brothers and sisters who can't separate eating idol food from worshiping idols. And it's unhelpful in that you're affirming demonic worship among your pagan neighbors by participating in it. But now he addresses the, the lingering question, which is, okay, if we, if we know that it's not okay that we go to these feasts and these temples, what about just eating the meat in general? And Paul says this, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So so Paul says that Christian freedom is really big in that it allows the Jewish Christian, who was formerly bound by strict dietary laws, to freely eat whatever is available to him. 
and it allows the Gentile Christian who used to eat food that had been offered to idols as worship to idols to be free from that worship and still eat the food. And so there's great freedom in this. Christians who have hoped in Christ as king, who have hoped in Christ as their salvation, can now enjoy the fullness of what God has created, knowing that all of it is sacred. So meat purchased in the market by a Christian is something that can be enjoyed with thanksgiving and with worship in the home, regardless of how it was butchered, who butchered it, or for what purpose it was intended. Food is only unholy when it violates the law of love. And so this is a huge point in regards to Christian freedom. Because what Paul is saying is that all things under the sun can be enjoyed by Christians in in right ways. We would put an asterisk by all things. Not all things, but all food and all, all beverage, all activity it is seemingly good if it is filtered through this law of love. And he goes on and says, if one of the unbelievers invites you into dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Which this is telling to me that Paul was probably a Texan or a Southerner at least because he knew that it was good Southern hospitality, it was good manners to eat whatever is put before you. And he goes on to say, but if someone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of conscience. And I do not mean your conscience, but for his. So now Paul is distinguishing between eating this food in a temple as idol worship, and eating it in the home of someone who's invited you to dinner. The former was prohibited, eating in the temple, but the latter seems to be permissible. And he tells the Christians in Corinth to avoid legalism and unnecessary dispute. He says, if, if eat whatever is put before you. You don't have to ask where it came from. You don't have to ask if it was offered to an idol. You can just eat the meal with thanksgiving in love and in unity. But if that food is said to have been offered to an idol, then you should refrain. And you should refrain for the same reasons that you should refrain eating in the temple. For the sake of other people's conscience. That because if you participate in eating food that someone has told you has been offered to an idol, you run the risk of offending one of two groups of people. You run the risk of offending a Christian who doesn't think eating idol food is okay. And you run the risk of offending and placing a barrier between a non-Christian and the holiness of the gospel. Because in that participation in eating food offered to a false god, you are in so doing affirming the worship of that false god. And therefore, you are betraying your faith in the one true God, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives them a call here to refrain if the meat is said to have been offered to idols. Because to eat idol food in front of a Christian who cannot eat idol food without feeling that they are sinning is is unloving. 
it violates the law of love. Because if you participate in a behavior or consume something in a certain way or, or have some sort of social occasion that a Christian among your brotherhood or sisterhood would see as unholy, then you're not loving them well because you're either pressuring them into participating in something that violates their conscience or you are lording your freedom over them so that they might feel weak, or you are excluding them from your group, thus creating disunity. And to eat idle food in front of an unbeliever, or to participate in questionable behavior in front of an unbeliever, is to affirm that behavior as something that is good and meaningful which places a barrier between them understanding the goodness and holiness of God, the freedom, the true freedom that is found in the gospel of Jesus. So the Corinthians are called to allow this law of love to saturate all of their decision-making. It is now the litmus test for whether or not I should proceed with anything. Is this loving? Is this helpful to someone else? Will this build others up? Because if not, then I don't need to participate in it. Whether or not I can defend it is irrelevant. Whether or not I enjoy it is irrelevant. If it's unloving, if it will make someone feel excluded, if it will make someone feel pressured into something that they don't appreciate, if it will make a non-believer question the holiness of the God of the universe, then it's just not worth it. The question they originally asked Paul was, why shouldn't we eat this food? Why shouldn't we eat this food if these idols are not even real, if they're not powerless? And Paul responded by saying, more importantly, why should you? Why should you eat the food? Why should you eat the food if it will hurt a brother or sister, if it will create a barrier between a non-believer and the gospel? And this begins to reveal something that we'll find in our hearts, and that is that most Christians, if not all Christians, drift toward one side of a spectrum. And on one side of the spectrum is legalism. This is the person who tends more often to, to refrain from perfectly fine behavior because they're afraid that it might be sinful. This is the person that is more prone to thinking that, that God will love them more if they're more obedient or, or that, that God will be more pleased with them or that they'll be more respected if they can uphold a certain standard of piety. And on the other end of the spectrum is, is the hedonist, the one who thinks that Christian freedom means that they can participate in any and every desire that they have because they are no longer forced to meet a certain standard, but they're given this free grace in Jesus. And so I, I can drink whatever I want, however much I want. I can eat whatever I want, however much I want. I can spend my time with whoever I want, whenever I want. I can orient my schedule however I want because I'm free to do so. But both sides of these spectrums, both the legalist and the hedonism, have a misunderstanding of what it means to be free as a Christian. In order to obey the law of love and to walk in freedom, the freedom that Christ has 
bought for us with his blood and his broken body. In order to obey that law, we need to redefine what freedom is. Because we've often said as Christians, we've often heard as Christians that that through what Christ has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection that we've been freed. But we don't often talk about and maybe we don't even know what it is that we've been freed from or, or to what we've been freed to. The status of being a freed man or freed woman is paramount to understanding what it means to be a Christian. So we need to know what it means. We need to understand this freedom. Because what we see in Corinth is a group of Christians abusing their freedom and thus sinning against their brothers and sisters in the ministry of the church. They're abusing that freedom. And so true freedom, as defined by the New Testament, is this. That we as Christians have been freed from sin, and that we're now slaves to God. That's Romans 6, 22. That we've been freed from the law which reveals sin and which leads to death, and now we are walking in grace and walking in life. That's Romans 8, verse 2. We've been freed to live lives of love and service and called to never use this freedom as a cover-up for evil. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. And then it gets even more beautiful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells us that we have been freed to reveal the fullness of God's glory to others. That true Christian freedom allows us to reveal the fullness of the glory of the God of all things. So the Bible is telling us that through Christ's perfect obedience to the law of God, through his sacrificial and wrath-absorbing death, and through his glorious and victorious resurrection, that the elect of God are now granted freedom from sin, death, and the legal demands of the law. That's good news, church. And in that freedom, we are moved from being free to sin, being slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to the law, to being slaves to righteousness. It means that our allegiance and that the authority that is over us is fundamentally different. Being freed from sin means that we are now given the real ability by the power of God's Spirit to walk in joyful obedience to the commandments of God. Which formerly we were unable to do no matter how hard we tried. We could not will good for ourselves. But now, because of what Christ has done, we are free to do good, to act in love, to be selfless. Being freed from the law doesn't mean that we are free from God's commandments or that they don't matter anymore. But it does mean that the law will no longer define whether or not we are acceptable before God. We are freed from its demands, but not its commands. We're freed from the law demanding of us perfection because in Christ's work, we've been freely given His perfection so that we can joyfully obey the commandments of the law, not flee them, not feel their burden. Not be oppressed by them. See, the law is no longer a cruel taskmaster for us now that we're free. 
but it's something that we're able to enjoy and to embrace and to obey in order for our newfound freedom in Christ to be fully experienced. So freedom from sin and freedom from the law mean that we can walk in humility and joy. It means that we can seek and purpose good and love for God and for others in all that we do. And we can do this without the guilt of sinfulness plaguing us or without the demands of obedience oppressing us and defining us. Since we're freed from needing to earn love from God and others, we are freed to love God and others. And we do this with selflessness, with sacrifice, with reckless abandon. And to do so is to be free in the most pure sense of the word. In this freedom, church, we can be freed from self-righteous legalism, from this end of the spectrum. But also, we can be freed from self-centered hedonism. All in the name of the sacrificial love of God. But what we've seen in chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians is that Paul was targeting in this discussion about food offered to idols a specific group in the church. And that was the group that was prone to abuse their freedom for the sake of self-centered hedonism, the group on this side of the spectrum. This was the group that wanted to enjoy the things of the world, even if they were at odds with the things of God. This was the group that wanted, would be more likely to be mistaken for drunkards than for teetotalers. The group that would be more likely to be mistaken for sexually promiscuous than prudish or puritanical. The group that would be more likely to accumulate wealth and social status than to give radically and humbly. This would be the group that would be more likely to justify their immoral behavior with their intellect, be it through theological or cultural arguments much more likely to justify themselves than to refrain needlessly from morally neutral things. This was the group that wanted to eat food offered to idols in temples devoted to idols with idol worshipers, even though their Christian brothers and sisters couldn't handle it and didn't approve of it. This was the group that was referring to their brothers and sisters who were deeply concerned with holiness as weak. This was the group that was more likely to be seen as a cultural Corinthian than a countercultural Christian. This group seemed to be the majority in the Corinthian church. And I wonder if it's the majority in ours. Are we a church which experiences division as a result of the majority or the free flaunting their freedoms at the expense of more prudent brothers and sisters? Do we tend toward justifying our questionable behaviors rather than laying down our rights to any participation that would prevent our neighbor from being built up in love and in truth? Have we so blended into our culture that we are not even markedly different than our non-believing friends? Are we 
unwilling to sacrifice our time or our social preferences in order to make both those within and outside of our church community feel loved, valued, and accepted and included? Or are we people who find time only for those with whom we have a natural affinity and fondness and shared interests? I don't ask these questions to limit your freedom, and I don't ask these questions that you would feel guilt or shame, but I ask these questions that the freedom of the church and mantras might be reoriented. Oh, that we would be a people who walk in a freedom that allows us to be who we are and enjoy the things we enjoy, eating and drinking and playing as we see fit, so long as it is loving to others. But never if it is unloving to others. See, that's what Paul wanted for the Corinthians. That's what the Lord wants for us. That, that we would filter all of our decisions, all of our desires, all of our participation through the lens of the law of love. This means that you're free to do what you see fit so long as it is helpful. So long as it builds others up around you. That we are ever careful as we freely engage with the culture. In meaningful ways, we will engage with our culture, we will engage with our neighborhood, but we will always be careful not to fall in love with its trappings and its pitfalls. You're free to drink whatever you see fit. You're free to consume whatever you feel free to consume, yet to participate in drunkenness is to participate with demons. You're free to consume whatever media you choose, Christian. Yet, the scriptures tell us that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds, so we should be careful with what we put in our minds. You're free to spend time with the people that you love most, but the gospel calls you to welcome the outsider and to avoid elitism and cliques. Our lives are to be lives of loves. And, and what we've said over and over and over again over the past six weeks is that lives which lack sacrifice are lives that lack love. Our lives are loving when we sacrifice things. And, and if our lives don't involve sacrifice from time to time, then our lives are simply not loving. We're simply not considering the needs and the desires of others. So to sacrifice and to love isn't a restriction of our freedom, but it's a working out of our freedom. We're free to love others because God has loved us. We're free to sacrifice for others because God has ultimately sacrificed for us and his love is made manifest primarily in sacrifice. So what could be a greater display of our freedom than to love and to sacrifice? To put others before ourselves. When we are loving, when we are sacrificial, what we'll find is that we will be holy. And when we are holy, we will live into what Paul begins to talk about in verses 31 through 33. 
Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Church, if we filter our decisions and our lifestyles through the law of love and whether or not our actions will be helpful, whether or not they will build up others around us, whether or not they are ultimately loving, what we'll find is that we'll begin to be a community and a people unlike any other community or people in this city. Because we'll begin to be a community and a people that is holy and that is loving and that is markedly different from all other human workings out of culture. We will display God's love boldly and powerfully and gracefully. And when we do that, we will see people encounter the loving God of all things in meaningful ways. Ultimately, that they might be saved from his wrath and invited into his freedom. And when we're this kind of people, God will begin to receive a lot of glory. See, God's name will be much greater than our names when we're loving and sacrificial and holy. God's name will be praised and worshipped and people will be invited in and, and the glorious God of all things will be given the praise that he is due, that we know that he's worthy of, that our hearts well up with love when we think about him, so will the hearts of others. As we grow in self-sacrifice, we will grow in love for one another and obedience to God. And as we grow in love for one another and in obedience to God, we will grow in our enjoyment and understanding of His character and of His beauty. And as we do all of these things, God will receive glory, church. He will receive honor and praise as we take part in His character through love and through sacrifice and through putting others before ourselves. Hundreds of years ago, uh, there was a group of some of the most godly and biblically knowledgeable men in the history of the Christian church in, in Scotland, and they wrote a, a series of questions regarding the Christian faith with strong answers that they found throughout the Bible, that they formulated these answers to all of these questions regarding humanity and sin and the nature of God and the nature of the church and the, the nature of the sacraments and all of these things, and and it's called the Westminster Catechism. And the first question of the Westminster Catechism is this. This is the first question they saw fit to answer. What is the chief and highest end of man? In other words, what is it that man has been created for that he is ultimately fulfilled when he does it? Or when she does it? And the answer they gave, after searching the scriptures and praying, and I'm sure arguing, was this. That man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is what we were created for. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And without sacrifice or love or thinking about what is helpful to others or what will build them up, or what will be loving toward them. Without the work of Christ changing the ways that we think and act toward ourselves and toward others, 
we will never see God glorified in our lives in the ways that he has created and saved us to be. And if we don't glorify him in all that we do, we will fail to enjoy him in all of the ways that he has created and saved us to do. Because we'll end up glorifying ourselves and enjoying ourselves. And that would be a really cheap replacement for glorifying God and enjoying Him. It would be a disappointment to not meet our chief and highest end as humans, to not reach that goal of of fulfilling what it is that God has created us for. We were created for relationship and for love and for sacrifice, and we have been freed to live into those things by relationship with God through God's love, by the merits of His sacrifice. So let us be a church that lives as freed men and freed women by serving each other freely, serving our neighbor freely to the glory of God for the freedom of others, and to maximum enjoyment. Let's pray. Lord, you are holy, and only you are holy. Yet you have seen it fit and good and glorifying to yourself to invite us to experience your holiness by your love. And so for that, we praise you. Would the promises that you have made to us, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, that we would be transformed into more and more holy and righteous people in in your name, by your power, would those promises come to pass? Don't tarry, Lord, but would you sanctify us? Lord, would you rip out from our hearts the love of ourselves and replace it with love for you and love for others? Would you allow the the law of love to be the very wisdom by which we make all decisions? That we would be a united church. That we would be a family marked by love and, and sacrifice and laying down our rights for others. That we would enjoy you, Lord. That it would be to our joy, not to our begrudging obedience, but that we would find deep and satisfying joy in laying ourselves down for the sake of others. And in this, Lord, would you proclaim your gospel to the people in our neighborhood and in our city who have not yet heard it through our sacrifice and through our love that they might be saved from your wrath and invited into freedom that we might participate in loving them forever. We thank you for your son that these things are possible and promised because of him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.